Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Every week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're mopping your floors on a Saturday morning or sitting on a beach enjoying a well-deserved vacation, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Camino Church Lessons podcast. We are just begun the parables of Jesus, and boy, it's a good start. we got a long way to go, uh, and today we are going to tread some good water, as it were, as we work through some of the parables in Luke, Luke chapter 15 to be specific. Uh, Luke does this trio of parables in this chapter that have uh, some great lessons. They kind of build and complement each other, and we're going to talk about those uh, today, or at least we're going to talk about two of those today, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. But before we do, we've got uh, some background to talk about real briefly that we did not cover in our initial podcast. I want to make sure that uh, you have at least some understanding of interpreting these parables and, and how Jesus' parables should be considered. And so just a few bullet points here, if you will, that may help as you continue to read and do your own studies, which we greatly encourage. So how should we uh, interpret parables? I think one of the things is, is that you never bring any presuppositions to the parable. Do not bring uh, any prior thoughts. Read the parable for what it is. Every parable has a key point. Jesus is going to hit that point. In some cases, he's actually going to explain that point, at least to his disciples. But uh, don't, don't force structure or meaning into it. Let it be what it is. Not everything in every parable, not every person or every image uh, is a metaphor. Uh, that would be allegorical in nature, and a lot of these parables are not at all allegorical. They have a driving point, and so... Keep those presuppositions at bay. Remember that Jesus' parables were always orally presented. They are uh, part of an oral culture in the first century where people listened more than they read except for the most educated and elite. So these parables would have been told multiple times in different settings and it may be that when we see differences in the parables that are repeated in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the reason that they're not exactly the same in part is they may be recording it from a different setting or a different telling. Uh, there would have been variations, but unlike us, because we're a visual society, they would have remembered the stories more or better in greater detail because they are used to living by telling stories. Um, if we want to understand Jesus' intent about each parable, then we have to hear it the way it was heard by first century Palestinians. We've got to put ourselves in their shoes. We've got to walk where they walk. We've got to sleep where they sleep. We've got to eat what they eat, if you will. Uh, we've got to put ourselves in their context. Do we understand their economic conditions, uh, which for most of them are not good? Do we understand the political and military conditions, the religious conditions, and then some of the cultural conditions like patron-client relationships, where very few people had money and assets? Most people, especially those of the Jewish population, had very little to their name. 
Uh, do we understand honor and shame? Where the goal in a lot of conversations, especially in public, was to gain honor, which meant someone else had to receive shame. So we'll try to hit on some of those as we go through and highlight them in the parables that we talk about. But we definitely have to have a cultural context understanding to, to read parables well. We need to determine the specific function of the story in Jesus' teaching. And some of this is covered when we categorize them. A number of these parables are about the kingdom. They're about nothing else but the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and we need to read them in that manner. And we need to understand what Jesus is saying about the kingdom and what he believes about it. And, and as one example, one of the things is that Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven is like not will be like, not should be like, but is like. And he's talking about a present-day kingdom that can manifest itself here on earth. So he, he believes, if you will, in a, in a realized, or knows, doesn't believe, he knows that there's a realized eschatology. Kingdom is not consummated, but it has surely begun. Uh, and so when we, when we kind of look at that, what is it trying to say? We don't need to break that parable into different context. We don't need to try to assign different parts of the parable to different topics. If it's a kingdom parable, it's a kingdom parable. If it's a parable about Israel, it's a parable about Israel. If it's a money parable, it's a money parable. So uh, keep that in mind also as we go through these. Also, when we read a parable, we should consider and interpret what is given to us, but not what is omitted. It does not help the function of a parable to fill in gaps. By their very nature, parables have gaps. And that's because Jesus is trying to get to a certain point. He is not trying to tell the every detail of a story. He's telling the ones that matter the most. So don't fill in the gaps with personally generated information. I know that uh, a vacuum always wants to pull information in it, but this is not one of those times that we need to do that. Uh, we don't need to impose real time onto parable time. Uh, parable time is, in many cases, is not really an issue. Time doesn't move in a chronological sense in parables. So we don't sweat gaps in time so much when we deal with parables. Uh, don't forget that there is the rule of end stress, that most of Jesus' parables have a moment at the end where the tension is is rising or it's huge and it usually happens very quickly and it's there for a purpose and we're always going to want to know why is the end stress there it's an indication of something uh, we need to look at what that parable meant uh, culturally and ethically in the first century so that we understand it the exact way as close as we can as the audience did but then theologically we need to pull it forward outside of that context to say what are the theological truths that were true then that are still true today. And that will tell us what we need to walk away with with that parable. So there's a few thoughts on how parables should be interpreted, and hopefully that's going to help as we go through it. So let's jump into Luke chapter 15, and let's start by taking a look at the parable of the lost sheep. Um, as we do that, we need to set our context a little bit to understand why Luke includes these parables and teaches them the way that he does. When you read the Gospel of Luke, it's important to understand Luke's approach to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and for Luke, um, 
his, his kind of his constant theme or, or a thread throughout his whole gospel is that the kingdom is good news to the poor. They may be oppressed and marginalized here, but not in the kingdom. It is a great place for them and has benefits that they do not realize or, or um, feel in their current reality. It is also a release for the poor. Uh, Luke has been called the Jubilee Gospel. And the reason it is is that there's um, the Jewish tradition of Jubilee, which is every seven years, uh, things get released. For example, the land gets released, uh, and so that it is allowed to, to not be tilled and not be planted for one year. And the purpose of that was for the land to replenish itself. Um, debts were forgiven after seven years. So when you, when you took out a loan with somebody, you had seven years to pay it back, and then it was forgiven. Uh, in some cases, people were set free uh, in, in that period of time, especially when you looked uh, at the seventh of seven years, the f- plus one, the 50th year, when you had this huge time of jubilee, debts were canceled, land was returned to its owners, slaves were set free if they wanted to be, lots of things are happening, and, and Luke emphasizes those things. So he is about good news and release for the poor. He is also, in his gospel, about seeking and saving the lost. And you're going to see that in these parables. Uh, The lost sometimes being those who do not believe in Jesus at all. They don't have an understanding. But the lost also being those who at one point in time did or understood who Jesus was and believed in him, and they have strayed away. And we will definitely see that in these Luke 15 parables. And so in this chapter 15, you have this grouping Uh, that's part of a larger section, that larger section being chapters 14 through 17, where there's this emphasis on the outcast, the lost, the downtrodden, the little ones, uh, and all of those folks are being addressed by Luke. Uh, In this chapter, you have this movement uh, that gets very personal, the numbers. For example, when we talk about the parable of the sheep, it's 99 plus 1, there's 100. When we get to the parable of the lost coin, it is a nine plus one. There are ten coins this lady has, then she loses one. When we get to the parable of the lost son, it's really just one. You see that movement from a hundred to ten to one? I think that is highly intentional on Luke's part as he shows that the gospel is not only for the masses, it's also very much for particular individual. As we're leading into this particular chapter, We're coming out of chapter 14 where table fellowship is emphasized and criticized by the Jewish leaders. And that's actually what's going to lead into chapter 15. You've got Jesus spending time with sinners uh, and and those who are marginalized. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, what that means, who that audience is in a minute. Uh, And then when you get out of chapter 15 and you go into 16, you've got um, this emphasis on hospitality and care. And so sandwiched in between table fellowship and hospitality and care, you have these three parables. So having having said that as our context, let's look at our audience real quickly. uh, And then we'll talk just for a second about structure. And then we will read the parable itself. 
Uh, the audience coming out of chapter 14 uh, are those who, who have criticized Jesus for spending time with uh, the sinners and the outcast, as we mentioned. Uh, he has this parable in chapter 14 of the great dinner where uh, dinner guests are invited and they choose not to come. They give all these excuses of why they're not going to come, even though they got the invitation and apparently agreed to come. But now they've changed their mind, and they're not following the path to this great dinner, which we can look at as the day that we all are in eternity together. But instead, they've given their excuses of why they're not going to be there, and they're all lame excuses, truth be told. And we don't have time to cover that, but... Uh, when, you, when you have a chance, uh, read chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. And if you know the cultural context of some of that, it'll kind of make, make you laugh. But when they don't come, the master of the house tells uh, the servants to go out and bring in all people. It says, go out into the roads in verse 23. Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Uh, and so you've got this, go get the people who, who are lost and who don't know me and who weren't invited initially and bring them into this great dinner. Go outside the walls, if you will. Leave your comfort zone. Leave the people that we know and go to those that are around us. And so when, he, when, he, when we get to chapter 15, after saying that um, we should be salt, to the world around us after this, after this dinner conversation, and he's talking about discipleship, we should be salt in verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? So that is talking about how we need to be salt to the world around us for the gospel. Uh, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Uh, and tradition... Uh, as I understand it, was when salt went bad uh, and it lost its taste and its ability to preserve, it was actually thrown out in the streets, in essence, to fill potholes and, and whatnot for people to travel on. And so I think that's the implication here. And then when we get to the end of chapter 14, Jesus makes this statement. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And then he goes into these parables. Remember, we talked about how in Isaiah, God, through Isaiah, told the people, you will not understand. You will not hear. You will not see. And so Jesus now presents these parables, and he says, if you have ears, then you need to listen. And I think what he's talking about is people who are willing, and they're willing to try to understand and to seek the truth. And so then he begins this parable, and we're going to read through it, and we'll capture as much of it as we can. Listen for the themes of love and being found. It's in all the parables. Listen to joy at the return of those who were lost. Listen for friends being called together for celebration. And then listen for repentance. You kind of get a little bit of all that in, in these parables. Luke 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Remember that in the last verse of 14, it says those with ears to hear listen. You got that same word coming back up immediately. 
All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen. And sinner wasn't necessarily someone who was disobeying God. In the first century, there's a little bit of a broader context than just those who were immoral. A sinner could be someone uh, who was dishonorable. They served in a dishonorable vocation. He includes in here tax collectors, not an honorable vocation in the first century. They may have been considered sinners by the Jews. Uh, it also could be those who are in unclean vocations, like shepherds. The very people who were supplying sheep for sacrifice were considered to be some of the most unclean people and would not have been included in a lot of things. Uh, any Gentile, non-Jew, is going to be considered unclean. And then social outcasts, people who had diseases and stuff. So I think when he talks about sinner here, it's not just immoral people. He's talking about all of those who are not accepted uh, by the current community. In verse 2, he says, And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And that word for grumbling is a bit of an exaggeration uh, of the word. You find it also in Acts 10, 28, that same grumbling, that kind of that out loud, being angry. They want Jesus to hear them. They want the crowds to hear them. And the reason they do it goes back to that honor and shame cultural context. They're trying to shame Jesus in public so that he will lose followers and they will pick them up. Jesus is going to respond the way he does in public because he's going to gain followers, right? And then the Jewish leadership will lose them in turn. So they were grumbling out loud, and not just this quiet murmuring, and saying, here's their complaint. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's their complaint to Jesus. Uh, and it's important to know some of the context about uh, the concept of eating and having table fellowship with others. It, it wasn't done similar to how we do it. You know, today uh, we eat in big restaurants and we're just hanging out maybe in groups or there's groups around us or we go to the food court at the mall or something like that. There's people everywhere. But in the first century, most of those dinners occurred in the home. And you only got invited if you mattered to the master of the house. And so there was a bit of a give and take that goes on. You invited people, first of all, that were those who could return the favor because you wanted to be invited to their house. See, table fellowship just wasn't about having friends over. It was an identity marker if you could host this, then you were someone of means, and people would get the word out, and people would come, the poor folks would come and watch this dinner happen. If you recall the story of Jesus being at the home of Simon, when he, he has come in, Mary comes in and anoints his feet, well, people are watching that. She gets to come in because people were hanging out at the doors. They were poking through the windows. They wanted, it was a spectacle. It was an event to host a table fellowship and to have a meal with someone. And you did it again because you had this circle of people who kept inviting each other. And all of a sudden, you, know, you were somebody, right? Everybody wanted to be part of your, your event. Well, Jesus is doing just the opposite. He's actually having ta table fellowship with people who cannot pay him back which I think is a very powerful, powerful statement. And it is one of honor and shame. He is not worried about the shame that culture sees 
in him because he's having that meal with him. He considers it to be an honor to be able to gather with the people who otherwise would not be surrounded and be cared for. So he's bringing these outcasts, and they are drawn to Jesus. They want to be with him for this, and they want to be part of it. Uh, clearly, the lesson here is the gospel is for everyone, and, and that's not really what a lot of the Jewish leaders are believing at that time. Um, in each case, with this parable and the next two, you have to read into this that God is behind Jesus' efforts to draw these people in. That that's a real gospel marker, if you will, instead of a social identity marker. It's a gospel marker that Jesus is there for everyone. Now, in this case, the people who are the leadership at the time aren't going to see it. And, and he can't really force them to, to kind of move that way. Thank goodness some, like Nicodemus, clearly uh, did. But he is opening up that gospel, and he has given them a kind of a fair warning of what's going to happen. So as he does that, they're doing that grumbling in the background. We get to verse 3. So when he heard them grumbling, in response to that, he tells them this parable. Which one of you? And that's a, an indicator right there. This is an interrogative parable, which means he is putting something out there to them to have them answer the question. He's, in essence, looking at those grumbling uh, Pharisees and scribes, and he's saying, which one of you, and then he tells the parable, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Which one of you? Have, do you remember your role? Or have you forgotten your role? It's a little bit of what he's asking, right? Having 100 sheep, losing one of them, leave the 99 in the wilderness. Now, I believe that this is not a desert wilderness, that this is more of a pasture or a plain that's uncultivated. It's where sheep would be herded to so that they could eat the grass. And if this shepherd has a flock of 100 sheep, then he or she probably has helpers. So it's not like they're abandoning the 99 because that's one of the questions that comes up a lot. Why does it matter to go get the one when you've got the 99 there? I don't think that's the point of the parable. If it was, Jesus would be speaking to that. Remember, we're not filling in the gaps. We're finding out why he's going after the one. So we don't worry that the 99 are going to be lost. They're probably taken care of. So then after he goes after that one, he seek and seeks to find it, he's asking them, would they not do the same thing? And the implied answer is yes. You don't want to lose any that are in uh, the sheepfold, if you will. But I think it's important to notice here that because Jesus is saying that when one strays, the shepherd goes after that one, we need to realize that God is not passive when it comes to seeking us out. And I know there are different beliefs about choice towards faith or predestination, all those kinds of things, and, and we're not really addressing that here, but we are addressing this, is that regardless of your perspective of how one comes to Christ, and you believe, like I do, that it's absolutely our choice, there is still the work of, the God, of God through the Holy Spirit to engage us, because we're not converting 
without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think you kind of hear that, at least I do, hear that in what is happening. That shepherd is going after. If this is people, if this is an example of how the leadership at God's direction should, should go after those who are not living the correct way, right? Then God is not passive. God is very active in, in pulling us into the faith. Verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. Right? You've got this very loving restoration that is occurring here. Now, there is a legend out there, um, and, and I've seen discussions that, that are for the truth of the legend. I've seen discussions that say that there's no evidence for that. And that legend was is that when a shepherd had a stray sheep, that that shepherd would break one of the legs of the sheep and then carry it until that leg was restored. And it forced the shepherd and the sheep to have a bond that would cause that sheep never to leave again. Again, I can't find definitive proof that 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 legend is true, that they would break the leg of their sheep to restore them. However, I do believe that because the shepherd has put the sheep on his shoulders and is bringing it back to the fold, you have this loving restoration that seeks to create a relationship with between the sheep and the shepherd so that maybe that sheep will not stray again in the future. So in this movement of salvation that we have seen, we almost can see this Trinitarian movement, right? The work of Jesus Christ makes salvation possible so the shepherd can go and find that sheep. The Spirit searches and convicts. Um, and I think in one, one version of this, uh, we, we kind of get an illusion of that, but when sheep are lost, they would bleat out. They're convicted that they're lost. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then God forgives and justifies so the shepherd can bring the sheep back. So I, I think you can begin to see some of that here in this particular parable as that shepherd has gone out, searched, found, and probably only found the sheep because of the noise that it was making and brought it back into the fold and rejoices, right? This is this term of celebration uh, when the, that one sheep out of a 100 has been found. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice or, or celebrate with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Isn't that cool? So you have the celebration that happens when someone is lost, returns to the sheepfold. And as you see in verse 7, that celebration happens in heaven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And you're saying, okay, why is one more important than the 99? That's not what the parable is saying. What the parable is saying is, is that when that one strayed and was found and brought back, in that moment of return, that celebration had more joy in it than the joy over the 99 who were still in the sheepfold. They're, they may stray at some point. The same dynamic will take place. So the one who is misdirected is not loved or rejoiced over more than the rest. It's the moment that it happens that he's talking about and how important that is. So we get to the end of this particular parable, and we've seen this great story 
of a lost sheep, a shepherd who diligently searches and brings it back into the sheepfold and then has a celebration, which, interestingly enough, don't lose sight of the fact that the, to have the celebration, the shepherd's actually going to have to, uh, it'll be costly. Uh, that shepherd's going to have to pay for that celebration, but he's going to gather his friends, and it's not unusual for shepherds to do that. Uh, they would actually uh, herd their sheep in flocks in close proximity, sometimes for protection, but sometimes just because that's where the grass was. But at the end of, of the night or end of the day during the night, it would be the tradition at times for them to gather together around the fire and share their stories and recount the day. So it's not like some, this is not something they would have done, but this is different because this shepherd is going to share the story of the lost sheep that he reclaimed, and they're going to celebrate it because all the sheep are important. So that leads us into the parable of the lost coin, uh, and it's, this parable doesn't get near as much attention a lot of times, uh, and that's, that's too bad because it has some really good points in it that we'll try to touch on briefly. Uh, it is a very short, short parable, and it is very similar to the parable of the lost sheep, but there are a couple of differences. So uh, let's take a look at it, and, and, and let's see how we can treat this thing. So let's take a look at this parable of the lost coin. It starts out with, and, it, and, and the word that I have in my translation is or, or what woman. So it's, it's a continuation of the previous parable. I've told you the one about the sheep and the shepherds. Now I'm going to tell you about the one about this woman and the coin. So part of our audience here is probably women, and not a surprise, because women would have followed Jesus. As a matter of fact, we have accounts in the scriptures that talk about the women that he healed and he ministered to that would follow him and in, and in at least some cases actually supported his ministry. Jesus is not working. Uh, someone's going to have to pay for food, maybe lodging, all the things that they need, brand new pair of sandals maybe here and there. And according to Scripture, there are women who are funding that. So it's an important role that they have in the ministry of Jesus and they're probably drawing in other women who want to hear uh, these kingdom stories. So in verse 8 of chapter 15, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, this is a short parable, but there's a lot packed into this thing, and this kind of put a little context to it that during the first century, Unless this woman had tremendous assets and means, and that's not the audience Jesus is talking to. We've already clarified that at the beginning of this chapter. So she probably lives in this very small home. It has a few windows. Uh, they don't have windows like we have today. It's just an opening. It may have some wooden shutters for bad weather, but they are not sealed tight. There's not much light in the house. Clearly, they don't have electricity or other modern modes of lighting. They may have some oil lamps. They don't put off a ton of light, so she's not going to be able to see very well. And her floor was probably a hard-packed dirt floor. Uh, and it would have been easy for to lose a coin in that, either under something, maybe a pot or a kettle or a seat or a table, who knows, or it could have just got lost in the dirt on the floor uh, when they've excavated uh, the home that Peter lived in, uh, which we believe is 
uh, his mother-in-law's home, I believe it is, mother and mother-in-law's home in Capernaum, they actually found coins in the floor. And so it's not an unusual thing for a coin to get lost in the floor. So then you have this woman, now appears to be focusing in his audience, right, that women can do the seeking as well. So they have a role in the gospel uh, transmission. They are responsible for bringing people into the kingdom. If she loses one of them, does not light that oil lamp, she's going to sweep the house, moving the soft uh, dirt away so that she can see this coin, leaving the hard-packed dirt in place, and will search diligently. And that is a key part of this parable. We don't hear that as much in the first parable. We definitely don't hear it in the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Uh, the father doesn't go searching. He does diligently wait, but he doesn't go searching. But she's going to carefully or diligently search until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends. And in the Greek, the her friends is a feminine form. So she's inviting her female friends to celebrate. And neighbors saying, rejoice with me, celebrate with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. You got that same uh, word for rejoice or celebrate that happened with the shepherd is now happening with this woman. She's inviting them over to get together to party and celebrate that she found this one coin. It may have cost her some of the food in her house. It may have cost her some of the water from the well, some of the wine that's been fermenting, some of the bread she baked earlier in the day, but that's okay. That one coin out of the 10 that she had was important. Uh, and in some traditions, Jewish women, especially those who did not have much, would actually wear their coins almost like a necklace to keep it close to them. So you can kind of imagine, if you will, that necklace breaking or a coin slipping off of it somehow and her scrambling to find it. Uh, and then she puts it back on and she's willing to celebrate with it because it's precious. She doesn't have a whole lot. It matters to her to find it. And I think that's true with God. I mean, God's got all of us. And the millions and millions and uh, billions or whatever people on the earth, but every one of us are precious in his sight. He'll go after that one again. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy in the presence over one sinner who repents. Isn't that awesome? And isn't it fascinating? You know, angels are, are not like us. We're not like angels. Um, when, we, when we pass away, we don't get our wings. We don't fly around the clouds and all like that. Angels were created for a purpose, and that purpose was to serve and to glorify God. So it's very interesting, if you think about it, they don't know redemption. The only angels that disobeyed, according to the beginnings of Scripture, uh, get cast aside by God out of the heavenly courts. Uh, the angels that are left are always obedient. They don't know the joy of redemption. And so they celebrate or they're shown that celebration in their presence in heaven because of the one sinner who repents. So this one's not as involved as the previous one. We kind of skip over it, but it's still so good. It's Again, it speaks to women, or a woman in this case, who is responsible for seeking the lost. It also talks about her diligent search. 
and how much harder she worked to find that coin. And I, I can only tell you in my life, I know my wife, she is diligent. She searches for things much harder than I do. So I don't know if that's a trait that uh, Jesus is emphasizing or if he just wants to point out that that's a characteristic of women that uh, benefit the kingdom, which I think is fantastic. Let me tell you one other thing before we wrap it up on, on this parable, and that is it's also important, I think, to recognize how Luke uh, deals with women in his gospel. Uh, more than any other gospel writer, he seems to have this uh, need to include women and balance them against men, not against men, balance them with men so that their uh, their participation in the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ and in the story of the kingdom is elevated. For example, um, in uh, Luke chapter 1, Gabriel appears to Zechariah immediately after that uh, in Scripture. Zechariah, I mean, Gabriel appears to Mary as well. You have this pairing of what Gabriel's doing. Um, at the uh, announcement of Christ's birth or, or uh, that Mary would, would, would have this birth of this Christ child, you have this canticle of Mary, this song that she sings. Uh, soon after that in Scripture, you have the song of Zechariah uh, as he is blessing God. So again, you've got the two paired together. Uh, when Jesus is an infant, uh, and he is taken to the temple and presented at the temple. Uh, they encounter Simeon, who is living out prophecy that God told him he would see the Christ child before he passed away. And so Simeon is there recounting that. And then immediately after that, they run into Anna, who has been living in the temple for a long time. And she is worshiping and praising God. And so you have Simeon and, and, and Anna paired together. In chapter 7, you have this centurion whose slave is healed by Jesus at the very beginning. And then right after that, you have the widow of Nain whose son is raised from the dead. Again, paired together. So I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't highlight how much emphasis Luke puts into pairing women with men to show that their role in the transmission of the gospel and living the kingdom is equally as important. So I hope you saw that. I hope that's meaningful to you. And I hope you took away some things out of those first two parables. The next time that we get together for the podcast, we're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I kind of talk about it as the parable of the prodigal son, the loving father, and the angry brother, because they're really all at play there. And we'll kind of talk about that and what each one's role is and how that impacts the story or represents the story of the kingdom and, and who they're talking about in each situation. So until we meet again and talk about this again, please stay in the Word. We need to keep this journey going because the more we know about God's word, the closer we can draw to him and better understand our role in the kingdom. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning into Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com.
We'll see you next time.